builds character. Every, everyone should make and, and immediately lose a few million dollars in their life. <laughs> you learn. You learn important things. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Phil, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. You're well known as the co-founder and former CEO of Evernote, to probably the world's best-known note-taking app. And of course, you're also building new companies these days. Before we talk about your Evernote success and what you're working on these days, I want to focus on your personal background. You actually studied computer science in Boston in the early 90s, and you then decided to leave university before you actually graduated. Why was the time you right to do so? Well, you know, I actually did graduate uh, later. I graduated in uh, uh, 2019. I got my, uh, my bachelor's degree uh, two years ago. Nice. Boston University of Computer Science 2019. It took me 30 years, exactly. I, I entered the school in uh, 1989, and I got my bachelor's degree 30 years later in 2019. So I'm the world's slowest uh, bachelor student. <laughs> That's sort of a, a, another like a, a cool world record to have. <laughs> but why was it the right timing back then when you decided to leave university and pursue your entrepreneurial career instead? I, I don't think it was the right timing. I think I was just—I just got angry at the university for something, and you know, lost my temper and stormed out. I don't think it was a particularly smart thing to do. Uh, you know, I was young and impulsive uh, back then. It, it didn't seem to matter that much because, uh, you know, I was working uh, as an engineer. There was, you know, I—I—I I, I, I didn't really see what the point of of sticking around was. But uh, you know, but if I had to do it over again, of course, I would have, I would have finished it, which is why I went back 30 years later and finished it. Um, Fair point. So. Where does actually your entrepreneurial spirit come from that you decided to go down that path instead of finishing university? Where do you have any role models or any inspiration? Well, you know, I never really thought of myself as an entrepreneur. Um, I didn't, I didn't really, I wasn't trying to do that. Uh, I thought I would, uh, you know, have a job. I thought it would be a, an engineer or a lawyer or a doctor or something growing up. And, um, it just didn't, it just wasn't working out. I mean, I, 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 you know, I went into computer science and I was, I was, I was pretty good as a programmer, but it was hard to, it was hard to work for, you know, in big companies. And so, uh, I just started starting my own things with friends of mine, but it always felt like we were just failing. It felt like, uh, the reason we were starting our own companies because we couldn't couldn't get real jobs. Um, so it wasn't probably until, you know, <laughs> until I'd been doing it for 20 years or something that I realized, oh, actually, it's not so bad. It's maybe this is a legitimate career path after all. But that, that's not like, like a, a very tough decision to take. If, if you pursue the path where you think you're not particularly good at or you're you have the impression that you're failing, what kept you going in those moments? Because that must have been a really, really difficult time to pull through. You know, I, I, we always had, I, I think I had a kind of a clear idea at any given time of, of things that I wish existed in the world, uh, you know, products or companies that I kind of, you know, thought the world needed. And uh, uh, my motivation has just always been to build the stuff that I wish existed. Uh, it wasn't really much more complicated than that. And it was, um, I was doing it with friends. Um, you know, my first, uh, my first three companies had had a you know pretty much the same group of, of, of co-founders, uh, and, and still even to, to this day, it's, I'm, I'm on my fifth company now, and there's a lot of people that I've been working with for a long time, and a lot of new people. And so you know, it was a, uh, it felt like I, I could work with people that I liked versus just having a job where I had no control over who I was you know working with, uh, and we could try to build things that we thought the world needed. Um, yeah, it seemed like a seemed like a reasonable thing to do. So, and it, we didn't really think too much about it. We didn't have like big aspirations to, you know, start massive companies or change the world. In in that regard, were you solving your own problems? Like, were you were building solutions to problems that you experienced yourself, or what was the motivator behind that? Um, at Evernote, we were, but that was that was our that was already my third company. Um, the first two companies, um, we. Well, the first company was called Engine Five, and it was it was one of the really early dot com companies. We, we we built some of the very first like e commerce sites. You could you know buy stuff on the internet. It was kind of a novel idea. We started that in ninety seven, um, which was right kind of at the height of the dot com, like the, the the first dot com bubble. Everyone was running around and saying dot com dot com, uh, and um, 
the motivation there was just we, just we 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 wanted to make a company, which I think is actually a really bad motivation. I, I wouldn't <laughs> recommend it to anyone. But uh, we just we were just curious. We were just like, well, you know, if we can we just make a company and we can decide who we want to work with and who we don't want to work with, and it was just kind of a social experiment. But um, uh, my my uh, and, and and Brandon were my two co-founders, and uh, we were all engineers. And, and back then, it was there was so much work available that you know if you knew how to program, you could you could people would just pay you to do it. So we didn't think too much about what we'd be working on. We just, you know, brought our computers into a rented office and started started coding. And it turned out that it was e-commerce because that's what people wanted back then. But so that one wasn't really solving our own problems. It was solving problems. So like we worked for Nokia. Uh, I remember one of our big clients was Nokia. We built one of their first, uh, you know, e-commerce sites. And then my second company, we started a month after September 11th. We started on October 11th of 2001. And, and that was much more about solving some important security problems. Uh, mm-hmm. That we thought the world needed, and not not so much ours. We our customers were banks and governments, um, and so for the first two companies, it was really about you know waking up every day and wondering like what does the customer want, and we just got really tired of it. And that's why when we started Evernote, we said ah, we just don't care what the customer wants anymore. We we want to want to build for us. We want to like we want to say we're the customer. Let's build what we want. Let's like stop thinking about what does a retailer want or what does a bank want. So Evernote was the first time that we built for ourselves, solving our own problems. And uh, it's interesting. It's, a, it's, it's interesting when, when you get to do that. Amazing. I want to talk about the impressive Evernote story in a second. But before that, at just 30 years old, you actually had your first decent exit and sold the company for $26 million. Has the money changed you in any way? Because, you know, making that much money at such a young age, that can be quite life-changing. Uh, yeah, it was definitely life changing. You know, I never had I never had any money before. Um, you know, my family never really had any money. We were, uh, you know, we were refugees to the U.S. Uh, from from the Soviet Union when I was when I was eight. So you know, my, my we grew up, uh, you know, pretty poor. We were on on government assistance, and uh, my parents were both um, are both uh, classical musicians. So there was never really any history of, of of making money, although they were you know socially respectable in the Soviet Union. There wasn't there wasn't any wealth. So yeah, I think I realized at one point when when we sold that company that I, I think I made more money all of a sudden than like all of my ancestors going back to you know caveman days put together probably ever had. And it was weird. It was a weird sensation, uh, and it was nice to, but you know it was very liberating. It was nice to think that um, I hopefully will never have to do anything I don't want to do. Um, like I, 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 I had no intention of retiring. I still wanted to work. I still want to, I still want to work, but I had no, um, you know, the, the money gave me the freedom to think about. It. I never have to do anything. I never have to have a job I don't like again. So from now on, I kind of thought all of my jobs will be jobs that I like, and that's that was that was pretty great. Nice. Did you do anything particular with the money that you made from that deal? Did you, you know, purchase anything specific or any big wish that you were now able to fulfill? I mean, I lost the vast majority of it because uh, um, <laughs> you know we, we we sold the company for um, we sold the company in January of 2000, which was about 20 minutes before the dot com bubble burst, uh, and so we got well, 26 million dollars and it was half in, in cash and half in, uh, in 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 stock of the company that bought us, the company that bought us called Vignette. Um, the half that was that we put in stock, uh, when the company bought us, I think they were worth like $10 billion. And then two years later, they were worth like, I don't know, 50 million. So the, mm-hmm. the, the stock fell by, you know, 99.5 or something percent. So that basically got wiped out. And then the cash we got, um, we mostly thought, hey, we were, we were really investment geniuses because, you know, we sold this company, so we really understand technology. So we invested most of it into, into other startups, and most of those went out of business, you know, over the same two years. So we, we, wound up, we wound up losing almost all the money we got. We got about, um, it was funny, the only reason we, we, we kept any money out of that was 25% of the total price. Um, when the company bought us, they, just, they told us that they have to hold 25% in escrow kind of in, in reserve for two years just to make sure that there's mm-hmm. no problems. And at first I thought, no, it's ridiculous. Like it's our money. You can't have our money for two years. You know, he was give it to us right away. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. So we agreed to it and, and they held 25% for two years in escrow. And so when two years later, when we, when we left, uh, we got the escrow payment and that 25% was still sitting there earning, you know, 3% a year. So that was still worth some money. Whereas the other 75% all went away. So we, we were able to get out of it with some value, but only because, only because adults like couldn't trust us with the money for two years. And we got, we got very lucky. 
So in the end, that was actually a pretty good setup. Only reason we came out of it with any cash. So it was only a few million dollars <laughs> at that point, but you know, still, still, still enough to, to 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 make a big difference. But it was interesting to like make so much money, kind of overnight, and then really lose just about all of it. Um, you know, within within the next year or so, uh, it was kind of an interesting roller coaster. How did that make you feel? You know, losing most of the money that you made, um, did that change you in any way? Or was that really a big frustration or didn't you really care that much about it? Uh, well, I think I pretended not to care very much. So okay. uh, I think we all got good at like saying, yeah, it doesn't really matter. And, you know, but of course, deep down, it's it's, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty unpleasant, pretty <laughs> painful. Uh, but, um, you know, but I think it's a... You know, it builds, builds character. Every, everyone should make and, and immediately lose a few million dollars in their life. It's, <laughs> you learn you learn important things. I can imagine. And I also wonder, you know, despite the, the 25% not being the full 100%, but it was still some pretty decent money that you made there that also gave you the freedom. Why did you then decide to continue building companies and not just enjoying life or not working that much after all? Um. Well, the second company was was uh, you know we were all very uh, we were all very motivated. I think like a, a lot of people were after nine eleven to to do something meaningful. You know, we really wanted to at that point contribute to the world. Uh, we thought there was some some opportunity for us to to make some important advancements in, in in the way that security was done, the way that authentication was done. That would just you know make the world a little bit safer. Uh, and and you know that was it was a weird time. I think back then there was a lot of people who were very motivated to to do this. And so we we started the second company mostly because we had this you know we had this great co-founder from MIT, this uh, very famous professor uh, Professor Sylvia McCauley, who had invented some some cryptographic techniques to um, that really became an important part of of the security landscape. And we we thought we would productize it. Um, and um, you know, I ran that company for about seven years, and it was definitely like working in the security field is 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 more. It sounds more glamorous than it really is. It was it was it was pretty boring. Um, uh, and then you know, after that, like Evernote was just kind of a, it seemed like a natural outcome. We just thought, all right, the last two companies we were, we spent all this time thinking about what do customers want? And just like the first company was a social experiment to see, you know, can we, can we just make a company? What will happen? The, the third company, Evernote, was kind of a social experiment just to see, well, if we just made a product for ourselves, what would happen? Yeah, actually, Evernote was founded in 2007. So can you take us back to the early days? What did Evernote focus on back then and, and how did it look like? Well, so after we got out of our second company, Core Street, uh, Kind of sat around trying to decide what we want to build, what we want to build that, that we're really interested in, and we settled on this idea of um, you know, cognitive prosthesis. We called it a, a, a second brain, build something to make you smarter. And um, we started doing research. We ran into this other team in, in California, led by this uh, this brilliant uh, Russian American inventor and entrepreneur named Stepan Pachikov, and he had a team of people that had worked on some of you, some of your listeners remember this, the Apple Newton back in the day. It was like the very first. Uh, kind of tablet and it had handwriting recognition. It was way too advanced for, for its time. So they had a team working on a very similar vision uh, and, and a company that they actually called Evernote. It's spelled a little bit differently. Uh, and uh, I met Stepan and we decided to combine, um, to just kind of combine our teams rather than, you know, having two startups compete with each other. So we I kind of brought my team. We were in Boston and brought them to, to, to Silicon Valley, to San Francisco. And we, we reformed uh, a new entity uh, that we then called Evernote. And so the modern Evernote was, yeah, started in about uh, 2007. And, um, the you know, the product vision was pretty consistent from, like, from what it became. Like, we we figured out in the first couple of months what we wanted to build. Um, and it was pretty close to, to what we wound up building over the next four or five years. Wow, that that's impressive because usually you see a lot of pivoting happening until you find the the right market or the right fit to to the problem that you're trying to solve. But you focus on your own needs and your own problems, and that sort of seemed to resonate with your user base. Yeah, I think um, uh, it resonated with the user base, and and also I think we made some we made some good decisions early on um, when we when we decided when we were thinking about well who are we building it for. Uh, you know, who, who's the target audience? And we said, well, you know, it's us. Like, we're, we're the target audience. We want it to be really good for us. And we said, okay, well, who, but what about after that? Like, like, can't just be for us. Like, what other kinds of people is it really good for? 
and we specifically decided that we wanted to make it great for two 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 types of people. We wanted to make it great for for journalists, and we wanted to make it great for investors, because we thought journalists and investors are kind of classic knowledge workers. It's like a perfect example of a job that you know you have to just process a lot of information and remember a lot of things and keep things together. Plus, we thought for a startup, like if we want two people to be nice to us, you know, it's going to be journalists and, and, and investors. So we, we kind of decided <laughs> to build a product that journalists would like and investors would like, and that it really paid off because every investor we talked to after the first year was was using it and really liked it and every journalist that that, that I ever interviewed with was using it to take notes and so it was a much friendlier environment because we just happened to build a product for for these two classes of people that sounds amazing now i also wonder if you compare your experience from the first two companies and then also evernote first focusing on what the user wants or what the market needs and for the third one with evernote focusing on your own problems on your own needs and building a product for yourself which way do you think is, is the better way to go about building a, a product and eventually a company around it? Well, I think um, building for yourself um, is kind of like a shortcut. Uh, it's sort of like a cheat code. It's like if you're playing you know, a video game and you like find the cheat code that makes you go faster. Uh, that's really what it feels like. It really makes you go much faster. Um, just because of the timing. Um, I think um, you know, if, you're, if you need to build a really excellent product, you know, it takes a lot of iterations to build something really excellent. Let's say it takes, you know, 10,000 iterations to build something really excellent. Well, if each cycle takes a long time, like for example, uh, when we were selling to the government, to like militaries and banks, you know, each, each, each iteration took about a year and a half because, you know, we would like sell a product to the Pentagon and like deploy it. And then they would have a formal review. And then like basically 18 months would go by in, in between revisions. So, you know, you got to do it 10,000 times in a year and a half. You know, it's like fifteen thousand years uh, before you're going to make a really excellent product, and and you don't want to wait fifteen thousand years. But if you make it for ourselves, like at Evernote, um, you know, each iteration can be like twenty minutes, because as long as you're being really honest with yourself, you can say every time you make a tiny change, you can say like, well, did this make it better or worse? So your 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 feedback cycles become much much tighter, much smaller. You can get through that ten thousand iterations in a couple of years, not fifteen thousand. Um, and so I think working like building stuff for yourself is is a massive massive shortcut. Uh, it lets you get through many more iterations faster. Um, you know, there's also significant downsides of it. So it's not, I don't think that one way is particularly better than the other. I think it's important to be kind of aware, you know, which is which and, 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 and choose what you're doing based on, you know, based on what you're trying to optimize for. What are the downsides that you experienced when building your product based on your own needs? Well, the main one is that, you know, there's a lot of people in the world that, deserve to have their problem solved more than more than we do um yeah. and if you're just building products for your own problems like it's a very it's a very narrow slice of things uh, and it doesn't really you know doesn't necessarily improve the world as much as uh, as much as it should be uh i think that's the main like big picture downside uh and this is one of the problems i think in silicon valley is like so many of the of the ideas are really meant for you know for the people in the valley and they're just not they're not that important uh, as ideas um, you know, tactically speaking, there's a lot of, a lot of problems, uh, like, um, you know, you, if you're literally just building for yourself and we ran into this at Evernote, if you're literally just building for yourself, then, um, at some point you, you stop building things for new users because like none of you are new users. Like we were all Evernote experts. And so everything we built was like for expert users. And then it turned out yeah. that like new people have no idea how to even start because we haven't like, we haven't focused on that. In, you know, in a while. So there's things like that. Like you have to, you know, at some point, if you're just building for, for yourself, it's just become smaller and smaller and smaller. So you have to force yourself to, 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 to go broader. Um, and, you know, after Evernote, I really didn't, um, for my next several companies, I, I specifically wasn't building things for, for myself. Uh, All Turtles, the product studio we started with, you know, really focuses on problems for, for other, other people and other types of people. And, uh, and it's slower like that, you know, when you're, when you're building for, for other people, you really have to understand them better and it, it takes longer to do each iteration. And then, uh, mm -hmm, you know, my newest company, uh, since it started as a joke, we weren't intending on building it as a company. Uh, we were, we are again, building it for ourselves because, you know, it's just a joke. We were just fooling around. And then I remembered like, oh yeah, it, it really does go a lot faster if you build for yourself. So now, now I'm back to, to building things for myself after, you know, 10 years of, of specifically avoiding it. Yeah, that, that's so impressive how you go back and forth between the two setups here. Uh, you know, 
it's not, not like you, you only do the, the same setup over and over again. You always switch the gear, basically. Another really interesting thing is you mentioned also the timing. So you basically started Evernote uh, right one year before the financial crisis. You sold your previous company just before the dot-com bubble burst. And I just wonder, the timing is such a crucial factor for startups. Is there any tip based on your experience how startups can better understand or also better work with the timing to get it right or to at least have a positive timing as, as good as that's possible? Yeah, I mean, the timing is is super important. It's probably the most important thing. And, and you can only control it to some extent. You know, there's a big element of luck uh, in it. So, you know, it's hard to it's hard to make too much of it. Um, at the... Um, there's a couple of frameworks that we have now for thinking about it that, that, that tries to help a little bit. Um, one is um, for all turtles, for everything that we work on, we we only want to work on things that we can bring to market for real, like a first version in 12 to 18 months. So like 18 months, the longest for like the initial, initial go to market. We don't want to work on something that's going to take, you know, a five year science project or something. Other people should, yeah. we're just not, not set up for that. Mm-hmm. So we work on things that we can get to market for real this year, like in a year, but in a way that would have been impossible had we tried to do it two or three years ago. So we specifically look for that window. We ask, like, what's changed in the world to make this this approach possible this year for the first time ever? Where if we tried it two years ago, it would have been crazy. Couldn't do it. Uh, but this year is like the first year that it can actually get done like this. Uh, so that, the, and that's a, that's a pretty specific way of looking at the timing. Like you just need to answer that question to say, was your idea possible to execute three years ago? And if it was like possible, like pretty much the same way as it is now. And if it was, then, you know, that's kind of suspicious because like probably many other people have tried to do it and you're probably too late. Um, on the other hand, if it, if it's still not possible to do it right now, then you know, you're probably gonna fail because you're not gonna succeed building something impossible. Startups just don't have that kind of that kind of run rate, they don't have that kind of patience. You know, Google can work on something that may not pay off for, for ten years or five years, but but a startup for the most part can't, unless you just raise, you know, a colossal amount of money. Um, so we, we very specifically say, you know, what are the new things? What are the what are the significant new changes in the world in the available technologies, but also just changes in society? Obviously, COVID was a massive change in society. What are, what new things are, are are possible this year that you couldn't do before? And you know that's a good that's a good start. You still there's still a lot of luck involved, but at least you know at least you're starting from from something plausible. I like that a lot. Do you have a, a good example to walk us through the the thinking process that you just described? Yeah, I mean, you know, mm-hmm is a good example. Or the the, yeah. the the newest company. You know, if we if we try to do it. Uh, you know, if we try to do it two years ago, well, three years ago, we started it last year. So if we, if we try to start it, you know, three years ago instead of last year, uh, it would have failed because, uh, well, one is a lot of the, the video processing and the, and the computer vision and the machine learning you do is just like really gotten much more advanced. So there's just a lot that we can do kind of off the shelf that would have required, you know, Google level investment before. But, but two years later, it was just possible to do it with just very good general engineers. But more importantly, um, society wouldn't have cared. You know, if we'd launched, mm-hmm, you know, two years earlier, who cares? Like video just wasn't that big a thing. But because of COVID, everyone was forced to, to be on it. It was such a massive change. Uh, so that 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 was a probably the best timing for it that I've ever had so far. Uh, is, uh, is 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 mm-hmm, because uh, we started working on it immediately when the pandemic started. Well, like like in May, started working on it in May of 2020. Um, and so it was very, you know, it was like, it was one of the first like new things that was native to COVID. Uh, but it, so it let us kind of think of, think of through things with new with new eyes. Uh, and at the same time, it, it took advantage of a lot of technology that was only developed, you know, in the past year or two. But it was the same thing with Evernote, you know, like had we started Evernote, you know, so we started in 2007, iPhone had just come out. Um, AWS wasn't available yet, but there was already a little bit of cloud stuff, you know, happening. Um, if we started it, you know, two years earlier, like there'd be nothing. Like, what what would we develop it on? We'd have to develop it on BlackBerry or something. But that ecosystem didn't exist. There was no app stores, you know. So, like Evernote was a good example. The society hadn't changed very much, you know. There's nothing that magical in 2007, but 
um, the technology really did advance where I think, I think we could not have built Evernote having started two years earlier. Uh, but when we started, we, we, we could do it. Uh, and there's this, I think, I think almost every successful startup has that example, uh, or very many do. I think if you look at Uber, you know, I don't think you could have started Uber two years before, uh, you know, they started Uber because, you know, didn't have ubiquitous GPS and smartphones wouldn't work. You know, imagine right. if, if Uber, if you had to put in, you know, exactly where you were, it would have so much friction. Plus, the payment methods weren't weren't very good yet. Um, you know, you would have to do, it would be like much harder to pay and much harder to call cars, like way too much, you know, friction. I think uh, Airbnb, you know, probably couldn't have started for similar reasons um, uh, than, you know, earlier. So I think, I think a lot of, a lot of successful companies have this, have this right. Whether they were thinking about it ahead of time or not, they started something in the first year that it was possible to do it. Um, and now, now we just try to do that on purpose. We just specifically say what's possible now this year for the first time, and, and, and that's a filter that we apply. But oftentimes you just look at that retroactively and it just happens to have worked out. Yeah, beautiful examples on the importance of timing. You also described yourself as rigorous optimism. In what way does that also influence or interfere with the timing question? Um, well, I think, uh, you know, rigorous optimism is, is uh, it's kind of a way to orient uh, myself uh, with the world. It basically says that uh, uh, like I'm not, I'm, I'm, it's interesting, like I'm generally, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist. I, I really believe that uh, the world can be made much better and will be made much better. But I'm also like, in my, in my personal life, like I'm not a very, cheerful person like I'm, I'm 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 kind of mopey i'm kind of melancholy um and um i think it's a it's it, it, it's a distinction that sometimes surprises people like I, you don't have to be personally you know sunny all the time to be an optimist uh and, and for me the distinction is rigorous optimism i think uh, the world will and can be made much better but you have to do it like it's not just going to happen you can't just like sit back and, and wait uh, you have to make a plan, one at a, one thing at a time, and and go and do it. Uh, and uh, and if you say, well, it's 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 my job, it's my job to, to to solve this problem because we can't wait for other people to do it. Uh, then it's okay, and and the world, um, you know, I think a lot of people have have a, a significant amount of of agency. People can do more than they think they can. Um, with that approach, I think too many people either wait wait for somebody else to do something or or they're, they're, they're pessimists. And I think neither of those are very useful orientations. And, and that's also something that seems to really annoy you because I think also in a different interview, you said the biggest problem in the world is wasted potential. Could you elaborate a bit more on that perspective? I think I was maybe talking about Russia in particular. I think I got a lot, I I got a lot of hate mail. I think it was a Russian interview. Uh, and I think the reporter asked me, <laughs> what I thought about Russia, and I said, "Wasted potential." Uh, um, yeah, I guess it's, maybe 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 I've maybe I've I've insulted even more countries that way. Maybe I have said it for the whole world. It's hard hard to remember. Uh, but yeah, I do think that. Uh, look, I think it's a tragedy. I think there's a there's there's a tremendous amount of potential in people. Um, uh, that you know, really brilliant people, like emer amazingly talented people, are 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 very rare. By definition, if you can't like, if exceptionally talented people were common, they wouldn't be exceptional. So, exceptionally talented people are super rare. But I think they're everywhere. I think they're they're evenly distributed throughout the world, and um, most of them are, are wasted because in most parts of the world, in most societies, they don't know what to do with really talented people. You know, if you're if they like they like crop up like you know mushrooms after a rainstorm, and if they crop up you know near Stanford then everyone knows, oh, this is one of these like really rare mushrooms and they know how to take care of it. And if you're a super talented person, you happen to have like popped up near Stanford, like you can get venture money and mentorship and everything else. And if you pop up, you know, lots of other places in the world, they could just kind of step on you. They don't understand. Um, and, uh, and I think that's a, I think it's a tragedy. I think, I think the world could be so much better if, um, you know, if we found ways to um, give every exceptionally talented person the same opportunity to use their talent to change the world as the exceptionally talented people in Silicon Valley get. Uh, and that's, you know, that's one of the things that we try to do at Old Turtles, obviously in a very small way. Uh, and I think is, you know, I think is true. It's true in, 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 in general. Um, 
Nice. I want to also focus on 2015. Again, the timing question. That was the year when you decided to step down from your CEO role at Evernote. Why was the, the timing right to step down and uh, to say, hey, I'm done being the CEO for that company? Well, I think, um, you know, I wasn't enjoying it very much. Um, and uh, I, was, I was having lunch or something somewhere and I think it was actually Nick Woodman, who was the, the founder of Go, GoPro, uh, kind of sat down next to me. We had, you know, we had been friends on and off. We hadn't seen each other in, in a year or so. And he said, hey, like, how are you doing? Are you still having fun? And I said, I don't know. I don't think I'm having fun. And he said, um, I said, that's bullshit. Like, you shouldn't be doing anything that you're not having, that you're not enjoying. Um, he said, at this point in your life, like, you should only do things that you're, that, you're, that you're enjoying because if you're not enjoying it, it probably means you're not very good at it. Uh, or you're not as good as 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 you can be, and uh, at this point the company is successful enough where you can get someone who would, who would be better than you, who would enjoy it. And I thought that made a lot of sense. So I thought, uh, you know, if it was if we were having again back to timing, this was in 2015. If we were having this discussion in you know 2011, then I'm probably the best CEO Evernote could have gotten at that point because you know who cares? It wasn't that successful or interesting a company. But a few years later, it was it was world you know it was it was, it was well known. It had hundreds of millions of users. And I thought, yeah, now now we can we can get a better CEO, and you know, I should be the person that uh, that, that that does that. Uh, and then uh, I thought I would change my role so that I bring someone in to be the CEO to run the company day to day, and I would kind of stay in the background and have you know product thoughts and that kind of stuff. And uh, I knew that 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 was you know it was always possible that, that doesn't work out because once there's a new CEO, like who knows how the how uh, personalities will work themselves out and. So we, we spent a while, we spent over a year looking and um, uh, we brought on uh, uh, Chris O'Neill, a, a new person as the CEO, and uh, uh, I kind of became the executive chairman. But after, after a few months, it was obvious that it was just like too, it was too weird. Like it was difficult for me and it was difficult for him, like having me kind of like hanging around. Um, so I thought the best thing was just be to, to kind of separate myself from it. But, you know, in terms of timing, it was a, it was a, it was easy decision. It was just like, yeah, I, I'm not enjoying it. That means that I'm probably not as good as a, what the company can get. And the company's successful enough where we can find someone better. So let's find someone better. So yeah, timing-wise, that makes a lot of sense. How do you handle that emotionally? I could imagine, you know, stepping down as CEO and then also eventually leaving the company uh, completely. That can be challenging on an emotional level. How do you handle that? Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was very unpleasant, uh, emotionally. Uh, and I think, uh, but I think this is like an important, this is an important thing. And maybe like, maybe it's like the most important, like CEO skill that I figured out, um, which is, uh, whenever I think, whenever I catch myself thinking like, oh, this is a hard decision, like about anything. And I wind up thinking like, ah, oh, this is a hard decision. This is a hard question. Um, I've trained myself that an alarm always goes off in my head and I think, okay, is it a hard question? Meaning that it's hard to know what the correct answer is, or is it a hard question? Meaning that I know what the correct answer is, but it's just unpleasant. And I realize that most of the time when I, when I feel that something's hard, it's actually not hard to know what the right answer is. It's just unpleasant. Um, and, 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 and I try to, I try to discriminate between those two things. I try to discriminate between decisions that are actually like very difficult to know the correct answer from decisions that the right answer is pretty obvious. It's just unpleasant. And when, once I started looking at this like this, I realized that, you know, 90% of the time that I think something's a hard question. I actually, it actually is an unpleasant question, but it's not hard. And of course, as a CEO, like who cares how pleasant it is? You just have to do it. You have to do what the correct thing is. So you just do it. Uh, you just decide what the correct thing is and you do it. And you, you realize it's going to be unpleasant. And it is, and it's difficult, but you know, you just don't, you don't pretend otherwise. Um, and I think that framework, like distinguishing questions that is difficult to know the correctness from questions that are just unpleasant in their consequences. I think that's a very useful skill set that, that, that I've, I've, I'm definitely glad that I learned that. Now, Evernote, I love that. Leaving Evernote was that example, perfect example yeah. of that. I love that perspective and that framework. Do you have any tips how then to navigate personally through the unpleasant, uh, you know, time or decision that you have to take? Any tips on how to navigate that as a as an individual? 
I mean, you know, a lot of that just takes practice, right? Like, like anything else that's, that's like, you know, like anything, it's just, it's just, it, 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 it takes practice. You have to do it. You have to, you know, make mistakes. Uh, um, I, I think, um, I think in general, like being a founder, uh, and being a CEO is, is, is a pretty, it's, it's, it's a pretty, uh, damaging, you know, thing. Uh, I, I think a lot of people kind of take it for granted. I think that the example that uh, that I've been thinking about more recently is like let's 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 imagine that you're a um, like a great skier. Let's say you're 20 years old and you're like an amazing skier, like Olympic level skier. And I, I'm not. I've been skiing like once in my life, and never going skiing again. But like, let's just say you're a great skier and you're skiing, you know, bumps and. And when you do it, you kind of know that you're like damaging your knees because like, of course, your knees are going to get banged up. Your knees are hardware. It's fine. You know, you can take care of yourself, but you know, you kind of decide that it's worth it because, uh, you know, you're 20 and you heal fast and whatever. And now let's say, you know, 30 years go by. Now you're 50. No one thinks that you're a better skier at 50. No one says, oh, you've got 30 years of skiing experience. It must be, it must be so much easier for you, right? Like you're like, well, yeah, I guess in some ways you have 30 more years of skiing experience. So in some ways it's, it, you're a better skier at 50 than at 20, but in like almost all important ways you're not because, you know, you've had 30 years of damage to your knees. Um, and people kind of intuitively understand that uh, because they think that knees are hardware. It makes sense. But somehow our society thinks that your brain is, is, is software, uh, and it's not. There's nothing magical about your brain. It's just hardware, just like your knees, and it gets banged up and it gets damaged. And being a founder and a CEO is very is 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 pretty brutal. It's it's pretty damaging because uh, you're constantly. It's very high stress. You're constantly in fight or flight mode. Um, and I think a lot of us learn a lot of bad habits uh, in our twenties because we assume that we just don't like we just don't understand that that it's difficult. And then we keep doing it the same way. It's it, 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 it's like if when you're 50, you're still you still think you're 20, and you're trying to ski the same way. Like uh, I can't be I can't CEO the same way now as I could when I you know 30 years ago. I have to do it differently. Um, so I have to like acknowledge that it just has to be different. And yeah, I try to like take care of my uh, of my brain in the process. Like I'm in this nice cabin by the lake right now uh, for a week because you know I can work from here and it's nice. But, you know, more importantly than taking care of yourself, I think it's just the realization that, like, it has to change. You have to be, you have to be, you have to be a different kind of CEO. You have to be a different kind of founder. You can't do it the same way at 50 as, as you could at 20. Uh, and then, you know, and then it's okay. Uh, I just think that a lot, of, a lot of popular society and, like, entrepreneurship society and that kind of stuff just doesn't, people don't, don't take this seriously enough. Wow. I mean, I'm, I'm just impressed how you, you can address those tough things and almost make them sound easy because it's so clear what you have to do. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, again, it's one of these things that's like, it's the difficult versus unpleasant, right? Like, yeah, yeah this is clearly what happens. You may not like it, but it's the right thing. So I also want to talk a bit more about the future. You already mentioned mm -hmm, your current, uh, you know, startup that you're working on. So what do you have, what, what are your future plans with, mm -hmm, what do you want to want to do with the company? Where do you want to go? Well, you know, the, the big, uh, um, the big change I think that's happening in the world right now is, is we're calling it out of office. Um, I think like the out of office world is, is, is what's what we're building now. Uh, as society, and it's it's a it's a really big change. Um, this idea that for most of us, you know, beforehand there was this thing called the office that really dominated our lives. You know, for almost everyone, you know, during the very middle of the day, during the middle, you know, during most of the week, you had to go to the central place and you had to commute, and it was like it 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 forced it dominated the center of your life for decades. And it literally forced everything else out to the sides. It forced out, you know, family and friends and self care and art and music. It was like you had to do those on the weekends or on vacations because like the office was like this major thing. And and now for the first time we have an opportunity to to dismantle that and to say um, knowledge workers can don't have they can work whenever we want, uh, and we can work from wherever we want and we can construct a life that uh, is much better and, and we can be much more productive uh, in, in in doing it. And so it's it's really out of office. Like this is the movement. Um, I think, uh, and, and, and when I say out of office, I kind of, I kind of want you to hear it as if I'm saying out of jail, like it's a similar thing. It's like, there used to be this big thing in the middle of your life that dominated your existence and that really constrained what you could do. And now you're free from it and you can do whatever you want and, and you can just have a better life as a result. Um, 
And I, you know, I think uh, mm-hmm, uh, we're trying to build kind of the essential tools for this out of office world. How do you how do you communicate in a way that's much more productive than ever before, regardless of whether you're in the same place as people or or, or far away, regardless of whether it's live like like you and I are doing right now or recorded, regardless of whether you're the only person in the company that's not in the office or everyone is out. You know, we just we just want to create the new generation of video superpowers. Uh, for so that as many people as possible can take advantage of the out of office lifestyle. Great. And now this out of office, this new lifestyle, you spend your week at the cabin by the lake. How do you want to design your life out of office? How should your life look like? What's ideal for you in that regard? Yeah, I think um, uh, I think just asking that question is, is is super important for yourself because I've never had an opportunity in my life before to, to ask that question because like even like where should I live? I never really thought where do I want to live before because uh, it wasn't that important to me because obviously like where I wanted to live was entirely constrained by the job. So the question really was where did I want to work? But now you can you can you can live wherever you have the best life and you can work wherever you have the best job and they don't have to be connected. Um, if you've got, if you work for the right kind of company or you make the right kind of company, uh, and so I'm just enjoying having that opportunity uh, to make those decisions separately. What, how do I want to work separately from 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 how do I want to live and where do I want to live? And then not just for me, but 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 everyone in my company, everyone in 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 in, in all of our companies uh, can do this. And so we're figuring out how do we give this opportunity to to everyone to all to all of our employees, and then how do we learn from it? Because it's not it isn't it isn't automatic. There's all sorts of things that we have to learn to get good at uh, in order for this to really, to really be true. Uh, but for me, yeah, I, I uh, so I moved to, uh, to, from San Francisco to Bentonville, uh, Arkansas, um, which is lovely. It's beautiful. And then uh, it's not, this cabin is about 40 minutes away. So it's, um, I basically, I have a nice home set up normally, but I don't just work from home. I work from three or four different places and I choose where to go. I walked everywhere. So they're all within like a 10 minute walk. And sometimes I work from home. Sometimes I work from this beautiful museum called Crystal Bridges. If I need to do something creative by myself or with other people, we'll go walking through Crystal Bridges or we'll use one of their rooms. And it's just amazing to be so surrounded by art and nature. Sometimes I work from the pool. There's a great club with a pool and a gym and conference rooms. So I can work from there and then go swimming in between, in between Zoom calls. Uh, so I've been picking my physical locations to optimize for what I'm trying to accomplish over a few hours. And I go to a few different places, which I think is great. And I walk to all of them. And then um, I, you know, I talk, I spend most of our communications now are asynchronous, probably 70 to 80% are async, which is just means recordings, uh, which we just got really good at over the past few months. Uh, and then about, you know, 15% are like you and I are doing, it's live electronic but live like synchronous right. uh, and we've gotten much better at those uh, because we build tools that mm-hmm is, is, does both of those things really well uh, and then about five percent are, are in person uh, and the in-person ones we, we really try to say it has to it has to count like if I'm gonna meet with someone in person like it has to be special we're not gonna like we're not gonna sit in a room and share give it, share slides with each other that's stupid that's better done on video so we're gonna meet in person it's always there's always there's always food there's always dinner there's always like you know, company, like the in-person stuff really is like, we, we, we try to make it count. And, uh, and it's been great. Um, I feel, you know, I feel much more productive over the past year than I've ever been. Not just me, but I think a lot of people at, 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 at my companies, um, we've definitely accomplished a lot. So I feel, I feel really productive. And at the same time, I feel like I have a healthier work-life balance than I've ever had. Uh, and at the same time, um, it's actually much more affordable because, uh, right now, like, um, hundred percent of the people that work at, at our companies can afford to, you know, live in the house that I'm currently living in and work out of the same club because like, it's not, you know, it's not that expensive when you, when you spread it out a little bit more. When I was living in San Francisco, that wasn't true. Like when I was living in San Francisco, my quality of living was much lower than it is right now. But even though, even though I, the only reason it was even as good as it was is because I was spending so much more money than the average person in my company. Um, so it was like not very good objectively, but also like much more exclusive. Like most people that worked with me couldn't afford to live where I live in San Francisco. But now it's actually better than it ever was, and it's much more accessible to everyone. So I think I think it's kind of I think it's like a magical transformation of the world. So this like out of office world, I think, taken to its logical conclusion, is 
is one of the best things that's ever happened to, to humanity. Yeah, that certainly sounds like a big win for everybody involved there. I think so, yeah. And, and you know, but we have to we have to solve a lot of we have to answer a lot of questions to to really make it stick and make it work well and sure. that's what we're in the process of doing. Absolutely. And my last question for the formal part of the interview today is do you have any ultimate goal or any bucket list items that you want to check personally on your entrepreneurial career or in your life? Well, um, you know, I've never taken a company public uh, and that, that seems like it'd be fun um, or, you know, it'd be nice to, it'd be nice to do. So if situation, you know, permits itself, I would like to, uh, to have mm-hmm and or all turtles be, be public companies just cause I think it's, uh, I don't know. I think like the promise of a public company is kind of elegant. I like the idea of anyone who wants to be an owner to be able to be an owner. I think that's a nice sort of democratic process. So, um, you know, I, I don't think it's that important. So if, it, if, if, if that's not the best direction to go, that's fine. But uh, everything else being equal, I'd like to, I'd like to, to take a company public at least once or twice. I think that's a great goal to have. Now, before we wrap up today's episode, I also like to ask you about your personal resources and gadgets recommendations. Do you have any books, blogs, newsletters, or anything else that comes to mind that you can recommend to our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm constantly, you know, using and getting and reading just kind of all sorts of things. Uh, I've um, uh, I, I, I've done a lot of work on on health stuff. I've really tried to to kind of get my own health in 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 in, in much better order the past few years. So I've tried every type of wearable and everything else. Uh, I think um, the thing that, that I got the most value from that that a lot of people is still kind of new for most people is um, I, I, I once in a while I wear a, a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor, which is um, not really intended for generally healthy people. It's usually for 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 people that are either pre-diabetic or diabetic. But you learn a lot. Uh, um, there's a lot of information that comes from it in terms of how different foods affect you. And that, that those been very useful. So if anyone is curious about health optimization, uh, I, I suggest kind of researching and looking into uh, a CGM, a continuous uh, glucose monitor. That's probably like, you know, everything else is like fairly standard, you know, Apple watches and aura rings and, and, and all that stuff. Um, uh, I just got a new Kindle. I, every couple of years I get like a, a physical Kindle and, and I always mm-hmm. love it. And I like, I don't know, I like forget about it or something. So I just got a new one yesterday um, that just came out and I'm really happy with it. So I've already read like just in the past 24 hours, a lot more than I normally do. Cause I've been sitting outside on my deck uh, in the cabin and, and reading the, reading the, the non um, you know, the, 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 the Kindle display is just so much nicer. So I think that's going to be my new, my new favorite thing for the next couple of weeks is reading nice. books on the Kindle. What are you currently reading? Currently reading a book called uh, 1491, uh, which is a history of um, the civilizations in the Americas the, you know, in 1491, the year before Columbus came over. So it's kind of a new, a new uh, appraisal of the sort of pre-Columbian history, which is totally different from how I learned it when I was in school. Apparently, like everything that we were taught about like what the indigenous uh, tribes were doing uh, before Columbus in the U.S. was just wrong. So it was kind of fascinating to like read this stuff and be like, I haven't thought about this in school. And yeah, everything I learned in school just turns out to have not been correct. So very, very good book. I recommend it. Great. And for the very last part, I have some rapid fire questions prepared for you. So I either give you a short question or a selection and you have to either make a choice or an answer in one sentence. Are you ready? What makes a good life from your perspective? Uh, I think uh, I'd like to have, you know, the world notice uh, the world be a slightly better place because I, because I existed in it. Um, Make an impact of some kind. It's small, but measurable. Nice. Founder or investor? I don't think I'm a very good investor. Um, Well, that's not true. I'm not a very good VC. Uh, my, my investment track record is, is, is actually pretty good, but uh, I, I wasn't interested in doing it as a job. I think the difference between those two things is like, if you, you can invest, you just invest your own money. If you're a venture capitalist, it's a job. That's what you'd have to do professionally. I'm not particularly good at that, so definitely founder. Where do you go to think? Uh, I, well, I'm always thinking. I don't, I don't think I have a place where I'm not thinking. I think I, I go to different places to think differently about stuff, so... 
right now I want to do some writing and uh, some slower ideas. And so, you know, I go to the, I go to the cabin by, by the lake, the Beaver Lake, and I, and I sit on the swing and the, on the, on the deck. Uh, but that's a particular type of thinking. If I'm trying to like much more creatively do product design and solve problems, I go to, I go to a museum, I go to Crystal Bridges Museum. Uh, so it really just depends. I, I try to pick the location based on what I'm trying to accomplish to be, to be best for, for that thing. I, I think, um, you know, the office was never good for anything. The office as an environment was always like the lowest common denominator. Like it wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't optimal for any type of interaction. It was just like where you can get everyone together. So now, now that we're out of office, we can choose instead of having one place, we can choose optimal places for the kind of thinking that we want to do. Nice. Health, wealth, or happiness? Oh, um, that's a that's a good question. Uh, I, I none of those. I think impact. Wow, that's yeah, that's a nice answer. That was not on the list, but that's certainly a good answer. What makes you happy? Um, hmm. I don't know. Um, the new, the new, you know, the new uh, Star Wars uh, cartoons, Star Wars Visions that Disney put out made me pretty happy. Those some really good ones. Uh, I was pretty, I was pretty happy about that. And the the last uh, thing to choose from for you: North America, Europe, or Russia? Uh, I mean, for for where I want to live, uh, I think, you know, I think I think I live in North America now, and you know, because I, I, I generally like it. Uh, I think I'd like to get a place in, in Tokyo, though, in Japan. Well, not Tokyo, in Kanazawa. So I think my next place, at least for a few months of the year, I think I want to be in Japan. Wow, nice. Why why Japan? just love the food. I love the culture. Uh, uh, it's very, um, it's very, it's kind of a different speed uh, than I, I, you know, I spend a lot of time in Japan, or at least I used to before the pandemic. I haven't been back in two years. I really miss it. But so I'm going to start going back soon. And uh, yeah, it'd be nice to it'd be nice to get a nice a nice quiet place uh, by the shore in Kanazawa, Japan, and just eat eat my weight in uh, crabs every year. <laughs> That's a nice vision, Phil. Thank you so much for having us here and for your time. Lots of success and all the best for the future and. We hope to see you ringing the stock market bell uh, one day in the future. Thank you very much. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity.